Hope everyone is well. If you're here for the first time, a special welcome to you. Uh, it seems like every week we've got new folks that are here, and that's very, very cool. Uh, we're glad you're here. We've got some welcome books that are going around. If everybody would fill those out, pass them down. If you've got some new information, put those in there. Put that in there. Um, every week, I don't know if you know this or not, but every week, most every week, uh, we have uh, an email that comes out from the church office that just tells some stuff going on, some things that are great to know about. And uh, if you don't get that, be sure and write down as the welcome books go by, be sure and write down your um, email address and say, can you put me on the email list uh, so, that I can, so that I can get that and, and stay up to date. This past week, there was a note in the, in the e-news that went out that let you know that this past Monday, we uh, signed documents to refinance the loan that we have on the building here and on the property that we bought about uh, 10, 12 years ago, something like that. And in that refinance, we dropped the interest rate four-tenths of a, pen, uh, four -tenths of a percent. Woo-woo, everybody cheer. Yeah, that's great. Um, the really cool thing is that, that that refinance cut two years off the length of the loan, which is a lot of money. A lot of money. Um, I can't wait for the date when that loan's paid off and when that money that we pay, that we, we needed to borrow to build this facility to buy that land, that was money that was well spent. But when that money becomes available for, for ministry, that will be an incredibly cool thing to the tune of about $140,000 a year, $150,000 a year. So uh, that's cool. So um, if anybody has uh, $1.1 just kind of sitting around and wants to write a check to do that, uh, take care of that, we could really have a celebration next week, all right? So uh, let me know if you, if you want to do that. Uh, don't forget next Sunday, time changes. Oh, yeah, thanks for reminding us, Rick. So that means if you don't turn your clocks and you come for first service, you'll really get second service, but you'll be way early, uh, all right? And if you come for second service and you don't change your clocks, you'll get like the last song, and that'll be about it. Uh, so be sure and change your clocks. Four weeks from today is Easter Sunday, and I, I just want to put a, a, a bug in your ear. The world, the world at Easter time looks to the cross and the empty tomb. Um, the vast majority of people want to go to church somewhere on Easter Sunday, if nothing else, to just find out what's going on and what it's all about. Um, that particular Sunday, uh, I'll be speaking from Philippians 3. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. It's, uh, it's right in the center of our, our series, and it's, it's such a great, great fit. Um, take some time this week, over the next few weeks, to invite some family, friends. We're going to do three services that day, and we switch the times around so that the service will, services will balance some. The first service is at 8 30. Uh, it's going to be an hour service. The second service is at 9.45, and the third service is at 11 o'clock. An hour service, so uh, the last service will be done by 12. Um, we think that that'll help balance out those last two services some, um, but be sure and invite some folks. It's going to be a cool, cool day. Uh, we'll tell you more about that later. Um, last week, we started this series, Living the Dream, talking about living the dream, and, and um, you know, that, that whole concept of living the dream, it really has just kind of spun around in my mind because when we think about living the dream in our culture right now, most of the time we think about 
circumstances that make living the dream real, right? We think, oh yeah, if I'm living the dream, I, I've got the flexibility to, to uh, be wherever I want. I've got the freedom to be able to go and do whatever I want. I've got the resources to be able to make that happen. That's what it looks like to live the dream. Last week, we talked about the beginning of the church in Philippi and, and Paul's tremendous love for them, the stories of, of, of Lydia, of the, the uh, fortune-telling uh, slave girl, the Philippian jailer that started that church, and, and what a cool church it was and how much Paul loved them. And um, at the end of Philippians, uh, in Philippians 1, uh, in verse 9, we finish that message to describe really kind of the core idea that's here for this whole series of what living the dream looks like, because it's not our dream, it's God's dream. When Paul said, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what's excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. God's dream for us is that we would live pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That's his dream for us. Today we're going to flesh that out in, in terms of saying, okay, what's that look like for us in real life? And we're going to do it by, by uh, spending some significant, some significant time talking about Paul. If you've got your Bibles, uh, take them out, turn to Philippians chapter 1. And if you have a paper Bible... Put your finger in Acts 21 or so, because we're going we're gonna to kind of go back and forth. If you've got an electronic Bible, um, get your reverse button ready, because we're going to kind of go back and forth. Uh, Philippians 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 12. Paul starts out and says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. If we were a television show right now, there would be a flashback. And um, if you're, uh, I talked about Lost a few weeks ago. If you're a fan of Lost, it's the backstory. It's the backstory of Paul at this point when he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me, if you're just jumping into the middle of Philippians, you're thinking, what happened to Paul? Jump back to Acts chapter 21 and let me just kind of buzz you through the life of Paul for the last probably three, four, five years at this point. In Acts 21, um, Paul finishes his missionary journey, he's going back to Jerusalem, and when he's finishing that trip, he has this word from the Holy Spirit that says, you know what, if you go back to Jerusalem, it's going to be bad there. Um, you're going to suffer, uh, there's going to be pain, you're going to end up being bound, thrown in jail. Are you ready for that? And Paul says, I'm ready for it. As a matter of fact, another guy, Agabus, uh, the Holy Spirit speaks to him. He binds himself with, with belts and says, Paul, this is what it's going to look like for you. Paul says, I'm going back to Jerusalem anyway because that's what God has in store for me. I think he's going to take me ultimately to Rome, but I've got to go back to, to Jerusalem. So he goes back to Jerusalem and, and reports to the church in Jerusalem um, what's happened on his missionary trips. And everybody celebrates. For a week, Paul's like the star of town um, among all, the, all of the Christians who are there. They're celebrating what God has done. And a week later, these Jews from Asia come and they start to stir up the whole city and say, Paul's this troublemaker, this carouser. And, and, um, and they incite a riot in Jerusalem. Literally, a riot that is absolutely crazy. Uh, yeah, 
check, check this out, Acts 21, into the end. Um, uh, the, the, so much of a riot that the, that the Roman tribune who's in charge, a guy named Claudius Lysias, brings the troops in to, to extract Paul from the crowd, from the middle of the riot. Think about all the pictures that you've seen when riots happen out in Baltimore, out in Missouri, whenever it happened, and people are just going crazy. The troops come in, extract Paul, take him to the barracks. Paul gets to the barracks, he's beat up, he's bloodied, and um, they pull him in, and the crowd follows him there because they want his head. And Paul says to the commander, can I talk to the crowd? And the, and the guy says, well, yeah. The crowd's going crazy. Paul comes out on the steps of the barracks and starts to speak in Hebrew to these people. They recognize their native tongue, the, the, the tongue of Scripture. They get quiet, and, and Paul starts to preach to them. And everything goes great. They're tracking with him completely until Paul says, you know what? God called me to go spread the news of God's love to the Gentiles. And everything explodes again at that point. The, this riot happens all over again. The, the troops end up pulling him in. Um, and, and overnight, they decide they've, they've, they've got to do something. So, uh, oh, let's, let, me, let me just think what happens real, real quick there. Um, the next morning, there are 40 Jewish guys that take a vow that say, we're not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. We're going to kill him no matter what. They launch a plan to kill Paul. Paul's nephew hears about this plan, goes to the commander and says, these guys are going to kill Paul. So there are these 40 guys that are ready to kill Paul. And the commander says, time out, this is going crazy. I've got to get control of the city. He pulls out 200 troops, 200 infantrymen. 70 cavalry guys, and 200 um, spearmen. So he's got almost 500 soldiers to protect Paul, and in the middle of the night, they extract Paul from Jerusalem and take him to Caesarea Maritime, where Claudius Lysias, who's the tribune there of Jerusalem, says, you know what, I don't want to mess with this anymore. I'm going to pass him along to a guy named uh, uh, Festus, Porcius Festus. So, um, so Festus then inherits this problem and, um, and Paul comes, the Jewish leaders come, they have a trial. Paul says, I haven't done anything wrong. Festus, here's the, whole, here, here's the whole trial, goes through everything again. And Festus says, you know what, I'm going to rule, but I'm not sure what I'm going to do yet. So he dismisses the Jewish leaders, has Paul under arrest at that point in time, and keeps calling for Paul to come and talk to him because he wants Paul to bribe him and let him out of prison. That lasts for two years in Caesarea. Paul is in prison for two years in Caesarea, um, all for charges for things that he hasn't done, that he's not guilty of. He's in jail that, during that time. At the end of the two years, Fe, uh, uh, Porcius Festus gets replaced by a guy named Felix. He comes in, and he's the ruler now in Caesarea Maritime. And and uh, three days after he gets on the job, this uh, Felix is a doer. He goes to Jerusalem. He meets with the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders are still spun up two years later over what, uh, over what Paul has been doing. They're still angry about it. And they want Paul brought back to Jerusalem so that they can kill him there. We can only, um, we can only uh, assume that those 40 guys who took the vow are either dead or they have started to eat or drink at that point in time. Because remember, they, it's been two years before that they made this, that vow. So they want Paul back in Jerusalem. Um, Felix brings them back down. They have another trial. 
And, and in the trial, the Jewish leaders say, we, you've got to send Paul back to Jerusalem. He's committed these crimes against the Jewish people. We want to try him there. They really want to kill him. And, um, and Felix says to Paul, you want to go back to Jerusalem? And Paul says, no, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm a Roman citizen. I'm going to appeal to Caesar. And Felix says, you appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you'll go. And so they, he starts the process that Paul is ultimately going to have his case heard before Caesar in Rome. Enter another character. Uh, we're down to about chapter 26 of the book of Acts at this point in time. A, a guy named Agrippa, who's the king of all Judea. He comes to visit Felix, and, and Felix tells him about Paul and says, this is really weird. This guy's really innocent, um, but he's appealed to Caesar. And Agrippa says, I want to hear him too. So Paul comes in, and in Acts chapter 26, Paul tells his entire life story to Agrippa, to the king of Judea. He talks about uh, what happened on the, on the road to Damascus when God intervened in his life. He talked about how committed he was to the Jewish faith before that and how, God, uh, how Jesus turned his life around and changed everything for him. At the end of Acts 26, at the, at the end of Paul's presentation, Agrippa says, you know what, this guy's innocent. He could have been released, except, except he appealed to Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, he's got to go to Caesar. So Acts 27 starts, they start this journey uh, to, to, uh, to head to Italy to go to Rome. Um, Paul warns them that it's going to be bad. It's towards the end of the year, getting towards wintertime. They ended up hopping on the ship anyway, have a shipwreck, a storm that lasts two weeks, a nor'easter that lasts two weeks. If you, uh, I don't know about you, but when I've been out on a boat in a storm, about 20 minutes is plenty for me when the waves start to rock and it gets bad. For two weeks, the ship is getting just thrown all over the place to the point that they jettison everything that they have on the ship in order to survive. They get rid of all of their cargo, all of their stuff, simply to make it through the storm. And, and ultimately, Paul comes to them and says, hey, here's the deal. Everybody's going to be okay. We're all going to survive this. Go ahead and get something to eat. I know it's been two weeks, but you need to eat something. So they do, and, um, and that night then, the ship runs aground, breaks apart. They end up on this island in Malta. Before, uh, before the ship breaks apart, when they realize that it's going to happen, the guards, the guards say, we've got to kill the prisoners. Jump back to last week, the story of the Philippian jailer. We've got to kill these prisoners or else they're going to escape. And Paul speaks up and says, you know what, we're all here Nobody's going anywhere. Nobody's going to escape. Everybody's going to be okay. And the, and the guard who rules that slave ship, that ship of prisoners, says, let everybody just go ahead and swim and make their way to shore. They do. They get to an island called Malta. The next morning, Paul's gathering wood. In the midst of gathering wood, he picks up a bunch of wood and a, and a venomous snake attaches to his hand. Everybody from Malta, everybody on the ship looks and, and they fully expect Paul in the next hour to die because of this snake. Paul shakes the snake off his hand into the fire. Snake burns up. Paul keeps talking, keeps going on as, as though nothing's going on. And everybody is just dumbfounded at the power of God. There's a guy who rules the island named Publius. His dad is sick and at the point of death. And, and he comes to Paul and says, can you come pray for my dad? Paul goes and prays for his dad. His dad gets well. He recovers. The power of God's on display in an incredible way. Three months later, 
Uh, it's springtime, the weather's better, they hop on the ship, they go to Italy. The Christian brothers there in Italy meet Paul. They get all jazzed that he's there. He makes it to Rome. And as soon as Paul arrives in Rome, you know who he meets with? He meets with the Jewish leaders there to talk about the charges that are against him. And the Jewish leaders in Rome say, we don't know anything at all about what you're talking about. We don't know why you're here. And Paul sits then in house arrest. At the end of Acts 28, Acts 28 finishes with these words. For two whole years, Paul stayed in Rome in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's at that point in time when Paul writes this. Paul is writing this from prison in Rome when he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me over the last three, four, five years it's really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial garden to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. If you were imprisoned unjustly, if you had been through a shipwreck that you didn't deserve, that you had actually warned the captain was going to come, if you saw everything that was going to happen and, it was, and, and you were innocent in the whole process, what would your attitude be? Paul says from a jail cell, he's been in prison now uh, somewhere between uh, two and a half and four and a half years. He says, I want you to know that what's happened to me has happened so that the gospel could advance. Today's message, this concept of living the dream, is all about perspective. It's all about understanding that our circumstances don't dictate the dream. God's dream is there for us regardless of the circumstances, regardless of, of, of what happens to us. He says, in the midst of everything that's happened, some really cool things have happened. The whole imperial guard knows my story. Here's the deal. When Paul was in prison in Rome... The Praetorian Guard were like the elite guards of Rome. They were like a cross between the Secret Service and um, the Navy SEALs and the Army Rangers. They could do it all, okay? And they, guard the most, they guarded the most notorious prisoners, the, 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 the greatest risks. So they're there with Paul. And what historians tell us is that, that every six hours, a new guard would come in to his home and be physically chained to Paul. So four times a day... Paul has a new guard coming in, physically chained to him. As Paul meets with people, teaches about Jesus, talks to them, hears their story, for two years these guys come. That's about 30,000 shifts of soldiers coming into Paul's home. And Paul says, the entire guard knows my story. They know that I'm a prisoner because of Jesus. Paul saw the opportunity that was there in his imprisonment for God to do incredible things. And he says this, And most of the brothers, having become confident of the Lord in my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul says, Because I've been able to talk about Jesus while I've been a prisoner, that's empowered, that's emboldened all the other believers. My witness in hard circumstances has impacted other people in an incredible way. And I'm so grateful for that. Have you ever noticed that when you speak up for Jesus, when you talk about Jesus, 
that what often happens is that you begin to hear other conversations of other people talking about Jesus as well. When one person stands for him, others begin to stand as well. That was the case with Paul. Paul says, as a result of my boldness in prison, the other believers, the other brothers have, have been bold as well, and the word has gone out in incredible ways. Uh, he goes on in verse 15 and says this, some, some of the brothers indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Have you ever, have you ever had people in your life that, um, that you felt like when you were down, they came beside you and held you up? They sustained you in incredible ways. Anybody relate to that? Good friends that, that, that ride the storm with you. Have you ever had people in your life that you felt like when you were down, they were there to stomp on you and, and to just grind you into the dirt in an even greater way in your misery? They were there piling up. That's kind of the picture that's here of Paul when he says, you know what, I'm here in prison. And, and it's been cool because as I've been able to speak about Jesus, so have others. But here's the thing. Some of them have done it out of pure motives, and it's been an incredibly cool thing. But some of them have done it out of jealousy and envy. Why would they do that? Why would they be envious of Paul? Why would they be jealous of Paul? Perhaps they were jealous of his fame. Paul was a famous prisoner in Rome. He's being guarded by the most elite troops there. Maybe they didn't like it that he was famous. Maybe uh, they were jealous of his influence. Maybe, maybe they were jealous of the attention that Paul get, got, even as a prisoner. Maybe they were jealous of his access to Caesar. We learn at the end of Philippians in chapter 4, when Paul sends greetings back to the church in Philippi, he says, um, even the members of the household of, of Caesar send their greetings to you. Um, the power of the gospel through Paul had reached Caesar's family. And maybe some people were jealous of that connection that he had to the high-level political figures that were there. I think some of the guys probably thought some of the people who, who, who were uh, preaching Jesus out of jealousy and envy, they probably thought that they were more talented than Paul. They thought, you know, Paul's not that great a speaker. He's not that impressive of a guy. I'm I'm better than that. And, and so they're, they're preaching kind of out of pride. I think, um, I think if I'm reading between the lines, I think that some people probably thought that they were perhaps, excuse me, more holy than Paul. Because if Paul was really God's person, if Paul was really holy, what was he doing in prison for four years? That doesn't make any sense at all. So, so they had this, this spiritual arrogance that came as they compared themselves to Paul. Some preached out of selfish ambition. Some just plain, I think, wanted to hurt Paul. Do you know people like that? Are there people like that in your life? That, um, that when you're down, 
They want you to be down even farther. Know that you're not alone in that environment. Paul, the Apostle Paul, experienced that. You know, it's, it's interesting to think that the gospel could go out through imperfect people because, you know, I'm pretty perfect. Um, uh, <laughs> my son is over there going, what? Not, not that at all. It's crazy. One of the things that I think is so great about this passage of Scripture in Philippians 1 is that it helps us recognize that God works through imperfect people with imperfect motives over and over and over again. He communicates his dream through people that are messed up, as, as much messed up as we are. Um, there are people who are, who are preaching. I, I, um, you know, I, I live in the clergy world, and so I go to conferences with other preachers. I interact with lots of other preachers. And, um, and there, there are some guys that I just have the, tr the, the highest level of respect for, that I think that they're, they're, their hearts are great. They, they just do such a great job communicating God's truth in incredible ways. And there's, there's some folks that I know that I think, God, how do you use them? Because their hearts aren't right. You know, the, the first thing out of their mouth is how big their church is or what they're doing. Or, you know, there's, the, there's this comparison braggadocio thing that's going on. They're, they're, they're talking about how this church, you know, shut down or, or we've taken all these people from this church and brought them to our their, their hearts aren't right. You know what Paul says? Paul says, even for those guys who preach out of envy and jealousy, those guys who have it in for me, I am so grateful that the gospel is being preached and that God is using them to expand the kingdom. Wow, is that a kingdom perspective or not? Paul's rejoicing over and over again that God would use imperfect people to communicate his truth and see in the big picture of, of people coming to Christ. Paul says it doesn't matter what their motives are as long as Christ is proclaimed, as long as the truth, God's, God's truth, the gospel of Jesus is going forward. Into uh, verse 18, Paul says, yes, and I'll rejoice, for I know that through your prayers, through the prayers of the Philippian church, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager anticipation and hope that I will not, at, not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by my life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul was certain in the beginning of that passage, he said, I'm certain that because of the Philippians' prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit, that he was going to be delivered. He didn't know whether he would be delivered and set free from jail or that he would be delivered by being executed by Caesar. 
by losing his head. He didn't know what was going to happen. And, and what's crazy, we think about Paul and we think about this tremendous man of faith, but I think when you read that passage of Scripture, you recognize that Paul, Paul wasn't certain that he was going to stand firm to the end. He expected and he hoped that he wouldn't be ashamed. That under the pain of physical, uh, uh, under the threat of physical pain, under, under the threat of death, that he would honor Christ. But he didn't know that for sure. It wasn't a simple thing for him. Paul recognized the weaknesses in, of his body. He said, man, pray for me. With your prayers, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I can stand firm and face, no matter, face whatever happens, no matter what. Paul said, famous verse, you know, a famous verse, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I don't know which is better for me. Yeah, Paul recognized, and this truth is so, it's so um, foundational for us when we think about living God's dream in our lives, that this life is temporary. It's short. In light of eternity, it's just a sliver of time. But from our perspective, we think that that. Everything is all about what happens in the here and now. For us, for most of us, the way that we live, death is our enemy. We're doing everything that we can to not get older, to maintain our bodies, to, to, to be safe, to be secure, to not live at risk because we see death as the enemy. Paul said, to live is Christ, to make a difference here on earth, to pour myself out for the body of believers. But to die, that's to win it all. That's when we enter eternity and, and are able to be in God's presence forever. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. Uh, Paul recognized the impact that his life was having on the church. He said, you know what? I, I, I see that it's better for me to stay here now. But as soon as Jesus calls me home, man, I am ready to go and be in his presence. That's what it looks like to live the dream. Verse 27 says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I see you come and, and whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. God's dream for us is that we would live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's dream for us is that we would live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would take the gift that God has given us in Jesus coming to die for us, conquering death, so that we could be in fellowship with God. That we would take that gift and that we would honor it. That we would use it for His glory. That, that we would be Miniature Jesus is walking around, showing people how to find the Father. Paul's, Paul's desire for the church in Philippi was that they would stand unified, contending for the faith, 
without fear. That's a great picture of what the church should look like, right? Unified, contending for the faith, and without fear. That we would speak with boldness for Jesus. That confidence that Paul said that the, that the Philippians would have would be a sign. It would be a sign of the destruction of their enemies and evidence of their salvation. Don't miss this truth that's there. Paul says, you will suffer for the sake of Jesus. You will suffer for the sake of Jesus. We live in a culture that avoids pain at all costs, right? We don't want to experience pain. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to do anything that's going to get us in trouble, anything that will cause us to be in a place of suffering. And yet Paul says, hey, here's the deal. If you're serious about following Jesus, understand that you're going to suffer. Those words echo the words of Jesus, right? Jesus said, in this world you'll have trouble, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Jesus said, Jesus said to, to the masses, and he said to the intimate group of the twelve, if anybody wants to be my disciple, if anybody wants to follow me, You've got to take up your cross daily and follow me. We hear those words and we think, oh yeah, that's, those are the words of Jesus. That makes sense. If I want to follow him, I've got to take up my cross daily and, and follow him. Understand that to the, New Test to the Jewish mind in the first century, the, the challenge to take up your cross daily was the picture of the most brutal torture imaginable. Jesus said, you want to be my disciple? You're going to have to suffer and die for my sake. Don't miss that. I don't say that to scare anybody, but to say, count the cost. Understand what it means to follow Jesus. It doesn't mean that life is all going to be a bed of roses. Paul spent four, four and a half years in jail. He endured a shipwreck. He went through beatings, all kinds of stuff for the sake of Jesus and was grateful for it because it allowed the gospel to go forward. He saw the big picture. Do you think that Paul, in heaven now, looks back and says, oh man, boy, I sure wish I didn't have to go to live in jail for those four years. Sure wish I wasn't beaten all those times that I was beaten. As he looks back, not at all. He, got, he, he had the perspective then, but he has it now in eternity as well. I, man, I'd give up all of that over and over again. So that this person and this person and this person could understand forgiveness and redemption. Could, so that they could understand God's tremendous love for them. Let me give you three takeaways really quick from this section of scripture that for me this, this kind of captures it. All right, The first is this. Living the dream is not based on circumstances. Living the dream... Living God's dream for our life is not based on circumstances. Living the dream doesn't mean that you live in a big house, that you've got money in the bank, that you're able to retire early. Uh, it, it means that God's dream for you is regardless of what your circumstances are. If you're poor, if you're in poverty, if you're, if you're squeaking by, if, you're, if your body breaks down, if you're in prison, God's dream for us is not based on circumstances. Paul understood that his circumstances were an opportunity, not a barrier. For Paul, surrounded by Roman guards, 
day in and day out, every day for two years, there was a tremendous opportunity for him to have conversations with those people who God was bringing into his life at that point in time. His circumstances um, he saw as an opportunity, not as a barrier. And that in, while he was in jail, Paul recognized that divine appointments come even in times of trouble. No matter what's going on in your life, if things are breaking down at home, if things are breaking down at work, if your life is a mess, if financially you don't know what to do, God is still bringing into your life divine appointments opportunities for you to see him at work and for you to speak about him and what he's doing in your life, regardless of the circumstances. When you think about it, Paul's influence in prison in Rome may have, may have been greater than at any other time in his life. Paul planted tons of churches. Paul traveled the world and yet when he was locked up in that house in Rome, it was during that time that the gospel reached Caesar's family through the Praetorian Guard. It was during that time that Paul wrote four of the books in the New Testament and, and, um, and reached out with words that we still read today that direct us to Jesus. Paul's influence in adversity was greater perhaps than in his time of freedom. Living the dream is not based on circumstances. Second thing is, is this. Living the dream without pain and suffering may mean that our dream is not very big. Living the dream without pain and suffering may mean that our dream is not very big. Paul said, expect suffering. Expect it. Know that it's coming. Um, big picture perspective, and, and, and let, let me just share for a second. Realize that Jesus' dream in coming to earth was so that we could be reunited with the Father, so that we could be back in relationship with Him. Jesus came to earth with this, with this idea that, you know what, when I come, the end result of that is going to be this reconciliation that lasts for eternity. It creates this incredible party of people who are far from God coming back into his presence. That was Jesus' dream, right? But in order for that dream to be realized, he had to go to the cross. He had to experience all of the pain and suffering that he did for us so that that dream could become a reality. Jesus' dream was the biggest dream imaginable, and it was a dream that involved pain and suffering. It cost him his life. Pain and death are not our enemy if we're followers of Jesus. Pain and death are not our enemy if we're followers of Jesus. That doesn't mean that we say, oh yeah, I can't wait to die, I can't wait to die, uh, you know, bring it on right now. But understand that they are not to be feared or dreaded because of the power of Jesus and the power of the resurrection. Living the dream, living the dream while suffering makes the dream, makes the dream that much sweeter. That we know that in our lives. When you learn to ride a bike, you don't learn to ride a bike without some bumps and bruises and scrapes along the way, right? Uh, 
If you, if you become a concert violinist, there are a whole lot of years of pain and suffering um, that happen for your family before you ever get there, right? Anybody ever heard of beginner uh, violinist? There's, there's pain that comes in order to get there. You know, in, in, that, in that illustration of the violinist, there are a whole lot of wrong notes that get played before you ever get to that point. There are a whole lot of concerts where you play the wrong notes and, and are embarrassed in front of hundreds of people. There are a whole lot of, uh, uh, a whole lot, there's a whole lot of pain that's involved in building those calluses, making those muscles work on your finger to, to, uh, to be able to play that violin. The dream involves pain and suffering. Last thing is this, let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's Paul's message to the, to the church in Philippians, in Philippi, that they would be unified, that they would be confident, that they would be without fear. Recognize that Satan will do anything that he can to take us off course. He will use fear, he will use discouragement, he will use pain, he'll use suffering, he'll use isolation, he will use anything that he can to take us off course. My encouragement to you today is don't let that happen. Um, I was working on this message this week, and I woke up, I think it was uh, Wednesday night, Thursday morning in the, uh, in the middle of the night, and, um, and there was this sentence that I think that was from the Holy Spirit that I couldn't get out of my mind. Here was the sentence. Nothing can thwart the plan of God. The reason I remember it so clearly is because of the word thwart. You know, thwart's a funny word. But understand this. Nothing can thwart the plan of God. It would be easy for us to look at Paul's life and say, good night, the guy was in jail for four and a half years for something he had, ne he had never done. That was, a, that was a minor piece of the plan of God. Jail couldn't thwart the plan of God. Paul's execution couldn't thwart the plan of God. Nothing can thwart the plan of God. Paul, in the face of terrible circumstances, could have folded and quit. He could have chucked it all. And that's true for us as well. When it gets tough at school, when it gets tough at work, when it gets tough in our relationship with our husband or wife or kids, when it gets tough trying to figure out um, how, how to make it through life because there's this cloud that just surrounds us, we can quit. We can, we can fold. We can give up. My encouragement today to you is to say, don't do it. Look at the example of Paul. Allow the big picture perspective of the dream of God to transform your circumstances and to, and to recognize that what happens today is just one tiny piece and there are so many opportunities for us, for the kingdom of God through us at this point in time, no matter what we're going through. We're going to sing and we're going we're gonna to sing a song that's I, it's, it's a great song because it talks about when we go through struggles, when we go through trials, how we respond to that. 
I want to encourage you this morning, as we sing, if you feel like you need to just come down forward and pray and ask God to give you fresh perspective on your circumstances, to ask God to strengthen you, to ask God to help you see past what's going on right now, I want to just encourage you to come do that, to just come down and pray. You can do that where you're, where you're seated as well. Sometimes it helps to physically take some action to do that. We're going to stand. We're going to sing. May God, may we hear the Spirit of God in our hearts directing us. Let's, let's stand and sing.